I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series, The Most Hated Man on the Internet. She said, it's called isanyoneup.com. It was basically a website um, of nude photos. I was racking my brain like, what? What photos could they have? How could I be on this website? I don't understand. Today, we're talking to director Rob Miller and producer Vicki Miller. Kayla was stunned to learn her intimate photos were posted on a revenge porn website called isanyoneup.com. It was run by Hunter Moore, a self-styled bad boy who reveled in the humiliation of the victims and the adoration of his equally raucous fans. When Moore refused to remove her pictures, Kayla had only one person to turn to. That's when her mother, Charlotte, decided she needed to take down the man the press had dubbed the most hated man on the internet. I win. I always win. That's what happens. So fuck you. You're not going to stop me. People said that he would come after me, that he would ruin my life, but he came after my daughter. Now I am going after him. And I'm joined now by director Rob Miller and producer Vicki Miller. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Hi. Thanks. Hi. So, Rob, I'd love to hear from you first. What drew you to this story? For me, I mean, at the the time before we started making this film, we were looking for stories that um, started life on the internet, but then spilt over into uh, real life. And um, the internet and social media is such a huge part of our, our world and the world that we live in. Um, so it felt kind of uh, kind of appropriate to kind of, you know, focus in on this relationship between what happens online and, and uh, what happens in the kind of real world. Um, and I think kind of revenge porn or so-called revenge porn is a kind of very kind of compelling um, example of this. And we came across the story of Charlotte Laws um, and um, her fight against Hunter Moore. I think really what kind of drew me to this story was speaking to Charlotte and um, hearing how passionately she kind of felt about what had happened in the past and how passionately she felt about the subject of revenge porn in general. And then talking to someone like James McGibney, who kind of joined Charlotte in, in, her, in her fight to hold Hunter accountable and hearing his passion. And then, you know, ultimately really speaking to the victims and hearing um, about their experiences, the, the, the kind of trauma that they went through when they were... Uh, posted on the website and understanding how that kind of trauma still resonates in their lives today. And I think it's a kind of combination of those things and the kind of recognition that, you know, so-called revenge porn is not something that has gone away. It's something that's still present. And to make a, you know, exciting story with very passionate characters, but also has a kind of kind of deep kind of contemporary resonance and importance. I, I think personally as a filmmaker, that's a kind of very exciting proposition. Now, Vicky, uh, we just heard him say so-called revenge porn a few times, but that, that term is changing, right? Yeah, I think the idea of um, calling it revenge porn just doesn't fit what was on the website. Certainly, it's, 
you know, these are intimate images that people have innocently sent to their partners. They're not trying to create porn, most of the people. They're just sharing something that's intimate to them. And so by calling it pornography, it it doesn't really represent what the images are about and and the reason they were sent in the first place. So I want to talk about Hunter Moore. Not only did he start this website of misappropriated intimate photos, but he also seemed to revel in humiliation and cruelty of of the whole thing. Um, Rob, what do you think makes him tick? I think that, I mean, what's kind of astonishing about um, Hunter Moore is although he was doing some kind of pretty kind of distasteful things online, you know, causing an enormous amount of pain in in a lot of um, people's lives. He had this kind of really kind of extraordinary cult following that it, there was almost a sense in which the kind of the more kind of outlandish and cruel he became, the kind of more popular he became. And I think, you know, if you look at his need, there's a, there's a sense in which that following kind of drives him to kind of kind of greater kind of acts of kind of deprivation. But I, I, they put him on such a kind of pedestal that I suspect that kind of became addictive after a while and that he needed to kind of f- fulfil and feel that validation. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's partly it. And also just a sense of kind of notoriety to kind of be recognised and to be known, you know, for something. Well, it all started with, um, you know, me hating some dumb bitch who broke my heart really and that's how it started dude me and my friends would just post a bunch of girls on is anyone up and uh we just got a bunch of traffic one day and i was like yo i can make money off titties and fucking people over that's the sense that i i get in kind of doing the research and talking to people and kind of following this this story I think for me, he very much kind of believed his own hype. And I think, you know, I've read that after he admitted to kind of having a God complex and and, and even he could see that he thought that the world that he'd created revolved around him, which it did to a certain extent. And he saw it as his ticket to, you know, fame and fortune. And, And the more he could create this character of, the so-called, you know, revenge porn king, the more dramatic and exciting his life was, according to him, and and, and more money he made. So it was very self-fulfilling. There does seem to be a sort of internet personality that has emerged, I think, in the wake of Hunter Moore, which is like the the cruelty is the point kind of internet personality. The shock value is the point. And, you know, he didn't just embarrass women with their photos and links to their pages. He allowed visitors to his website to comment on their looks, on their sexuality. Uh, can you talk about that, Vicky? Because that is just it's not just, you know, humiliating people by showing their imagery. It's allowing other people to then pile on the humiliation. And that is exceptionally cruel, I think. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think, you know, we've spoken to people who described him as the first internet troll. And I think there's a lot to that. He figured out, you know, you could say quite cleverly, that if you're mean to people on the internet, you get a lot of attention. And and a lot of people, you know, there's a certain section of, of society that like that. And he figured out the worse you are, the more notoriety you got. So he absolutely went as far as he could in order to get as much attention. And, um, you know, there were websites already with women's photos being posted. He needed to go a step further. What could he do to get more attention and to make him the so-called, you know, revenge porn king? How could he push it even further? And he did that by 
pure humiliation and, and allowing others to to pile in. I, I, I really think it was almost saw he thought, you know, a gap in the market and, and, and went in to fill it in, in cruelty. I mean, I think that what was also kind of really distinctive about this site is not only do you have these kind of photos, um, the majority of which were kind of published um, online without the person's consent, not only do you have a comment section where you kind of invite people to kind of make cruel comments about the person featured, but he also posted um, so links to people's social media. So the humiliation wasn't just kind of contained to the website. They could continue, you know, find people on Facebook or find people on Twitter and kind of continue leaving kind of mean and nasty comments. And, you know, I can imagine if you're posted in one of these pictures, you don't want other people to know about it. But because the links to social media were posted, that became inescapable. So it, you can, I think, you know, what was particularly apparent in terms of the impact on these victims' lives was how just all-encompassing and how inescapable it all, all felt and how much power this man unfortunately had over them. He had this rabid, toxic following, and it was like people, something was unlocked inside of them because of his cruelty. Like it, it was gave them permission in a way, like this unleashed cruelty sort of came out in other people. And I found myself wondering, you know, did the fans feed his monstrosity and did he also create monsters like did he make people behave worse than they would have behaved otherwise does that make sense it does or or did he tap into something in society that is there already and he just saw you know it's such an interesting question is it that he just saw what people wanted and, and gave it to them and are we all inherently cruel i i'm tempted sadly to say it is that I think if someone was to do the same today, they'd possibly get the same response. I think the monsters were waiting to be created. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think people are doing the same today on you know in different ways and different forms on Twitter and so forth. I think you've seen it in podcasting. I mean, it, as unfortunately, I think a phenomenon that exists. It was amazing to me to see this seeing like the progenitor of it in a, in certain ways. Um, you know, maybe the truest thing Hunter said, or maybe not true, I don't know, is that he started the website after he got his heart broken. Um, Rob, what do you think? Is misogyny a part of his fixation on an ex-girlfriend? Is, could that be true, you think? I think it's, I think, it, you know, Hunter kind of created his own myth or kind of participating in creating his own myth. And to an extent, that kind of story has been kind of validated and although he might kind of deny it, I think that if you're posting those types of um, intimate pictures, mostly of women, and inviting incredibly kind of misogynistic comments that being accused of misogyny is kind of pretty kind of uh, valid. And, you know, I think that, in our, in our, just reflecting on your last question, you know, I think he, he kind of made, he made it seem okay, like it was all right, like he was getting receiving all this adulation, he had all this popularity, he had all this following, so other people felt that they had kind of license to kind of do that. Um, and, you know, equally, mm. there is something about the internet that creates a kind of distance and social media between the person behind the screen and the person that they may be attacking, where, you know, you might not go up to someone and, you know, shout abuse and obscenities in their face. But if you, you could do it online, you won't necessarily see the effects. Um, and it's a kind of a much... It's much easier to be cruel online, I think, than kind of um, in front of someone's actual actual face. 
Hmm. Um, can I just answer your last question? Because I, 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 I don't believe that story at all. Hmm. I think he yeah, loved... Yeah, I didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> he, I mean, we already prove in the series that, you know, he's already created one legend about himself when he gets stabbed in the arm with the pen uh, by, the, by the woman who's crossed that she got posted. And I think that might come as a surprise to some viewers because that really was a, a, a story that got repeated again and again in the press. I think many people would not even think to question it. So if we already know that that was completely made up and it was from a mole being removed and that's where the scar came from. I, I don't believe that story at all. I think that him and his mates were swapping nudes um, and it got posted onto a bodybuilding website somehow and the traffic took off. And so they realised, he realised there was a market in it. I think it's easier to create a soft story like that to, to start building his own legend, which is what he really was trying to do. He'd constantly say, I'm just giving people what they want. And, you know, he did receive the followers and he did receive the likes and he did receive the retweets. So, you know, there is something, sadly, that's kind of in that. That's true. So, Vicky, did it take just one determined mama bear or was Charlotte Laws uniquely suited for this task? I'm curious, what was your impression of her? Yeah, I mean, she's amazing. I think she is uniquely suited to this task. You know, she's a woman that's lived many lives and she's the sort of woman and and, and by living those many lives has amassed many skills, you know, a unique skill set. Um, she's also a woman who doesn't take no for an answer, which I really admire. And, you know, she sets out to do something, she's going to do it. I had to focus on getting Kayla's photo down as quickly as possible. I called Hunter's publicist, his agent, some of his advertisers. I was trying to kind of get as much pressure on him from as many different directions as possible. So she absolutely was kind of the right woman in the right place. I do think, you know, we tell the story through through her eyes. There were other people um, involved in bringing the website down and um, kind of bringing Hunter Moore down. So, you know, James McGibney obviously got the website down and the FBI obviously you know, ultimately did the investigation and, and, and brought Hunter Moore to justice. But Charlotte's completely at the centre of the story. And, you know, if only there were more Charlottes in the world, she, she's very um, single-minded and determined. I, I met her in LA and she's just like that in real life. She's, a, she's an amazing character. She's an amazing character. So, Rob, it seemed like law enforcement and even some journalists uh, were eager to lay blame on the victims for either uh, posing or taking photos of themselves. That seems like less of a legal judgment than a moral judgment, right? I think that's right. I mean, you know, we I mean, we're making this series kind of post Me Too and when I hope that kind of attitudes um, have kind of changed and evolved. But certainly at the time that this um, story uh, took place it, it, when Charlotte attempts to report Hunter to the police. They they blame Kayla, and I I think that you know in the media he was celebrated to a kind of a large a large extent, and it was the kind of victims that were that were blamed. And I think that kind of you know added to your sense of of victimization the fact that you haven't done anything wrong, and that's something that we make very very clear in the film that no one, whether you were hacked or you just had your, you know, it was an act of revenge porn or however your photo um, ended up on this website without your consent. You know, it's certainly not something that you were kind of at all responsible for. It's something that was done to you. But I think that, you know, it was kind of shocking. And 
I hope that, you know, it's something that we can redress if there's any, you know, any doubts into who is responsible. It's really Hunter Moore and the person that sent that photo to his website and certainly not the victim. One thing I think your film does a really good job addressing as well is the level of humiliation, shame, powerlessness that these victims felt. We hear from a nursing student named Kara. I don't think that I would have ever attempted to take my own life had that moment of being posted never occurred. That is the catalyst that mentally snapped something in my brain. Vicky, what does that tell us about the level of pain this website caused? Were you surprised at how bad it got for some of these women? Yeah, I was I was really surprised actually. I think starting out on this and you know, being posted on a revenge porn site is awful, but it wasn't until I started talking to a lot of the women that I realized that it went so much deeper than I think you initially think. Um, it's something that tears people's lives apart, that there's no coming back from. I think what's significant as well is that the period in which this is set, it was the emergence of revenge porn. It didn't even so-called revenge porn. It didn't really even have a name then. And so to be the first victims of this, where a naked picture of yourself almost goes viral, that must have been even more terrifying and even more traumatising when it's new. Now we hear about it quite a lot. It's, it's sadly much more accepted. But to be one of the first that that happens to must have been so horrifying and disorientating and no one, no examples of people that had happened to you before. So I think that hadn't even made the people that we talked to, you know, it affected them even more because of that. I, I think like, you know, and I think one of our kind of motivators and one of the things that we were all incredibly keen on when we started making this series is that we put the kind of victims' voices kind of, you know, front and centre. And we were very fortunate, you mentioned um, Cara, but there's also Danielle and, and Kayla, who, you know, women that just showed the most kind of extraordinary bravery in, in coming forward and kind of sharing their experiences. And at the time, they were shamed into silence, that they, they didn't have a voice. Society was against them. Society was blaming them. Um, so, you know, we felt very strongly that it was important that, that you know, they should be focuses of our series because it's it's their story and their their voice really needs to be heard. Some men were posted as well. So obviously we speak to Brian, um, who was posted as well. Um, and I think it's a whole different experience. If Well, it might be different. You might be expected to act differently if you're male and posted. But we did speak to male victims as well. You did. And you also spoke to a victim who came to interact with Hunter in a very different way. You spoke to Destiny, who, uh, of course, became known as, quote, butthole girl on the site. She kind of entered in a different way into Hunter's realm. Um, you know, in order to ingratiate herself with him, she originally submitted photos. She kind of got trapped into performing demeaning acts on camera. He recorded her without her consent. She really got into a position where she felt there was no way out. And it affected her life in a way that she's still not she's still coping with those impact those effects today um can you just talk about like her choice to go on camera with you i found it incredibly brave and i found it really really wonderful that you included her story in this film destiny's amazing she's absolutely amazing i mean we worked um a lot with her in in the run-up we were on the phone with her 
um, a lot. She wanted her side of the story to be told. Hunter was not willing to take the screenshot of my kids off of there. The only thing that would work, I felt, was if I offered to take more pictures of things in my butt. She almost had Stockholm Syndrome in a way. At the time, she was so enthralled to Hunter. Um, and I think she would say, you know, she really, really liked him. Um, she couldn't see what he was doing to her was as wrong as it was. And it's taken her all these years to be able to separate and look back and realise what she went through. And I think once she came to that realisation, she wanted to speak out and, and let people know what she'd gone through and, and, and how it had affected her on such a huge scale. You know, it, it affected her whole life. So, Rob, it's really interesting because initially for Hunter, he's surrounded by this family of followers. He's getting all this adulation, all this praise, and he's able to sort of dodge the complaints, at least, you know, or at least hide behind all this, you know, fandom that he has. But then as soon as he goes on mainstream TV and like regular people see what he's like, he can't hide from that. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that that was that was that was a very kind of significant event in his kind of uh kind of journey. Um, and I think, it, I don't think that, I mean, if you watch it and you watch the footage and you see his kind of appearances, I don't think that he was kind of expecting to be kind of um, challenged in the way that he was because he had never been challenged before. Or he was, you know, always been in a situation where he could kind of just charm himself out because he, you know, a lot of people report who have met him in person that he is a kind of super, you know, he is a charismatic kind of individual. And then I think suddenly to kind of be confronted with, a kind of a less forgiving, more kind of critical audience was a, you know, a kind of a really sig significant moment and a kind of turning point in his story. Do you feel bad about doing this to, I mean, you don't know these women, you don't know anything about them. What's I mean, that's right kind of what makes it easier, you know? I mean, you know, it is all anonymous. I don't know these people and, uh, you know. But they're sitting right here. I mean, do you, you don't feel any, any... No, I mean, no one put a gun to your head and made you take these pictures. I think it's really interesting, that idea as well. I think one of our... Uh, Mike, one of our interviewees, says it, where the, the, the personality and the persona that he'd cultivated online just didn't translate to TV. And that's so interesting. And, you know, we have that nowadays. You know, that was the beginning of it, but we have that nowadays. You, you can absolutely cultivate an online persona. But like you say, Rebecca, when you come out into the real world, everyone sees through you quite quickly. It's, you know, it's a real reckoner. It really is. It really is. And you think about people with these massively popular web TV shows or even podcasts again, and then when you see them on TV and you're like, what? How many people listen to this? How many people watch? It's really incredible. Um, so at, at one point we see Hunter partying really hard. He does it also right in front of the press, people who are covering him. He seems like this modern libertine without a care in the world. But when you hear like the amounts of money he's actually making, it doesn't quite seem to match the lifestyle he's portraying. Was there a dissonance there? From what we could tell, and we did look into it, and it's, it's hard to get to the bottom of, the money ebbed and flowed. So there was times when he had lots of money and the advertising was doing well and the merchandise was doing well. Um, and that's that they were his two main revenue streams. Um, and so he did have money to spend. I think times when he didn't have money to spend, he kind of, I don't know, because I wasn't there, but I imagine, I think he begged, borrowed, still, you know, he managed to keep the lifestyle going. Yeah. I think I think the money certainly ebbed and flowed as, as, as yeah. far as our research showed. 
I, so I think like financially, he was a bit of a victim of his own success because I think like the more popular he came, the more kind of servers. I mean, like I'm not I'm not technical in that respect, but he needed kind of bigger and faster servers, and all that cost a huge amount of money. Um, and you know, he also kind of employed people. And, and one of the things that we kind of look at and explore is, you know, the fact that there were possibly people that were posted on his website who weren't over the age of 18. So he had a way of 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 checking, although a lot of people aren't convinced that it was watertight. But with if you consider those costs, the server costs, the cost of employing people, and then actually how much he was making, um, I think that's where perhaps his claims to be making millions of dollars were kind of overblown. I was watching the partying scenes, too, and I just kept thinking, like, cocaine isn't free, you know? He seems to be also uh, supplying party-style lifestyles for a lot of people around him. Um, So it is this quest for money that brings Hunter to James McGibney. He's a cybersecurity expert who hates bullies, which I love. How was James able to convince Hunter to part with the website? The minute he heard about Hunter, he wanted to bring the website down and... I think in his own words, totally destroy Hunter Moore. Um, he um, he basically kind of befriended him in a way, pretended they were on the same side and got to know everything about how the website worked and so that he could figure out basically the weak spot that he could then attack. And the weak spot, you know, there was a few weak spots, one certainly being the money um, that, that James was giving him to keep the website going. He realised Hunter didn't have much money. And the other one was the amount of images coming into the server that weren't legal in, in you know, various ways. Um, and he knew because he could see the back end of the server. He knew that these images weren't legal and he basically psyched him out, if you want of a better word. He told him that the police were going to come for him, that it was all going to come crashing down. Um, he just needed to take the site down and he would be in less trouble. And Hunter had knew so many people were coming after him at that point. He was aware of Charlotte. He was aware an FBI investigation had started and he realised what James was saying was right and wanted to um, not go to jail. <laughs> it didn't help in the end, but he didn't want to go to jail. And, and, and James managed to convince him that if he carried on with the site, he would definitely go to jail. James calls it, you know, you can mentally bully someone. Hmm. And, and that's what he did. That seems fitting. (laughs) Um, So when Hunter announces he's going to start a new website, it seems like there's nothing to stop him until the hacker group Anonymous gets involved and turns his world upside down. They wiped out his social security number. They made sure that there was no way he could flee the country if he had an active passport. That was no longer active. They hacked into his bank account. Any money that he had in there was allegedly transferred to a woman's abuse shelter. We hear people say they don't condone Anonymous's actions against Hunter, but they did enjoy it. Uh, Rob, where do you come down on that? I, well, you have two, you know, you have two very kind of strong forces at play. I mean, you have the FBI who are trying to hold uh, Hunter accountable in a court of law. You know, um, Jeff Kirkpatrick, who is the agent that we interview and, you know, did an extraordinary job and was unbelievably dedicated to the case. And then you have, you know, a group like Anonymous who aren't kind of constrained by acting kind of within the law. And if you subscribe to the idea that the ends justifies the means, in the end, a terrible website that could have caused even more damage to victims, to kind of men and women, um, was never, never went live or um, never operated in the way the previous one did. So um, that probably has to be a 
a good thing. So at the sentencing, Kayla gave a victim statement. My privacy was violated by Hunter Moore, a guy I did not know, a total stranger. He called himself a professional life ruiner, and that's exactly what he did to me. Vicky, what struck you the most about what she had to say? It was extremely moving and extremely brave to stand up in court and have everyone hear the impact that had on you. And Kayla is a private person, so I know for her to do that must have taken a tremendous amount of courage and I have a huge amount of respect for her for doing that. I was struck by the way she said she was speaking for all victims and she knew about the other experiences of because of the people her mother was in touch with. And it's extremely giving to not just focus on yourself, but to make the court understand she's just one of many. thought that was very moving. So, Rob, you can't tell a good documentary without appropriate visuals. And so much of this story revolves around images that are private and humiliating. So I'm curious about what your guiding principle was when you were discussing and deciding which images to use and in what manner to use them. I think if you tackle a subject like this, you have to be incredibly sensitive. You know, there's a possibility that what you're doing could become salacious. And that's really what you need to avoid because you don't want to kind of repeat the sins of, of Hunter Moore. So I think it was important that when you, when you speak to people who, have, who go onto the site, whether they're victims or people that just visited the site, that they have a very kind of visceral reaction to it. And I think it was necessary to try and convey that and evoke that from our audience. But our guiding principle was to be sensitive to the people that appeared on the site in the first place um, and the people that appeared on our recreated site Um, who gave us kind of permission to use some of their intimate images within the series because they felt it was a really important story to tell. So I did want to ask about those sourcing of the images because, of course, the site, it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, absolutely. I think what it was, like Rob says, you know, we felt very strongly that if we're making a series about people's intimate images being posted without their consent, you know, if we were to use images on the website, we would be perpetuating that. The, The original website had so many images on it that people hadn't given consent for. We didn't know which ones had been given consent or which didn't. So it just ruled out the website completely. And our starting principle was we have to recreate this website. Um, and like Rob says, to the to the same visceral effect. So it was extremely hard and we tried lots of things that failed. Um, and then eventually our assistant producer, Alice, um, found a company called I Shot Myself, which is it's a socially responsible adult website. Basically, everyone on the website has kind of taken the images themselves or, or has control of their own images and they receive all the money for the pictures. And so we wrote to a selection of the people on the site and asked them if they wanted to be involved. And remarkably, quite a few of them had their intimate images used without consent anyway, not connected to as anyone up, but just anyway. So it was an issue they felt really strongly about. And so they were really delighted to take part in something that was raising awareness of that. The documentary ends with a card saying Hunter initially agreed to take part, but later declined the invitation. Can you tell me what happened there? Sure. So we, you know, when we, you start a documentary with an open mind and we reached out to Hunter and as filmmakers, you're interested in what makes people kind of tick. And 
particularly when this is a person who seems to have caused a lot of misery um, to a lot of people to kind of try and understand, you know, what motivated him. I think there's some value in that. Um, and we had um, discussions and he agreed to kind of participate. He possibly saw it as an opportunity, but in the end he decided against it. But I think that although he decided against it, he still feels very present in the series because he was on social media all the time, because he was tweeting nonstop, because he was constantly publicising himself. You know, I hope that even without his kind of direct participation, you know, he feels like a kind of presence because he was such a presence in the lives of the people that did give up interviews. And you get a sense directly from him of the type of person he was and what his motivation was and how much he cared or didn't care about the people he posted on his site. So I, I found myself wondering if he had participated, would the audience have a different perception of him than they had just watching your film? Because, you know, we've seen him on mainstream television interviews before, right? And it didn't go great. For me, I was initially disappointed when Hunter didn't want to take part because I felt like I didn't, I wasn't aware of how much archive or how much footage we had of him and that he would be represented in the film. But I thought that it would be good to have both points of view. And then it turned out to be a much better way of telling the story, just including him in archive. We, through, his all, through all his media appearances and everything, we got a good sense of, like Rob said, you know, we've got a good sense of what his thoughts are, what he felt at the time, and we've included them. We flipped the narrative and we, you know, we included the voices that haven't been heard yet and, and, and it's the victims and, and, and they were led by Charlotte and it's, um, it's a great way to approach the story. So your series is now on Netflix. Lots and lots of people are going to be watching it, thinking about it, talking about it. I'm wondering, is there a moral to this? What do you want people to walk away with after watching The Most Hated Man on the Internet? I do, I do really hope that people do kind of, you know, talk about it and, and think about it. I think any film that you make, you want to, to kind of provoke a kind of a, a reaction and kind of, you know, hopefully a thoughtful one. I think... For me, I think, you know, there is a kind of absence of kind of compassion and empathy in everything that Hunter Moore did. And I think we're, we're perhaps, and perhaps he did appeal to something within us that was kind of complicit. And I think it would be nice that just in our kind of daily interactions, and because we have so many interactions that, you know, where there, you are in a position where perhaps you're thinking about causing somebody else pain or not thinking about how your tweet or your comment or a picture that you post can affect somebody else's life, that maybe you kind of stop and just realise that, you know, what you post in line does have consequences, it does have impact, it does have effects, and that just because something on line doesn't, doesn't mean that you should be devoid of kind of compassion. You know, the story took place 10 years ago, but it's not like revenge, so-called revenge porn has gone. It's it's happening on a massive scale, you know, these days as well. And it's just, yeah, now people can see very clearly, I think, the consequences of, you know, posting someone. You just, I would really like them just to, yeah, stop and think twice before, you know, they post to their WhatsApp group or, or the website. It's not a Pokemon card to be traded. It's someone's life that you're about to ruin and it's like someone says in in the film i think it's mike again you know one click can ruin a life like don't do it you've seen you know you've seen the consequences don't don't do it <laughs> well it's a shocking story and also a really surprisingly moving one that you both told uh director rob miller and producer vicky miller thanks so much for joining me to talk about it thank you thank you 
That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Rob Miller and Vicki Miller. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review the show and share it with your friends. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to get all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>